ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We've watched with some cautious hope this week as talks took place in Egypt to again try to end the fighting in Sudan now into a third month. Over the past couple of years, we've really followed this seesawing story between autocratic army control of the country and very brave and bold civil society pushback, desperate for democracy. And it had looked full of hope. But in this post-revolutionary period, terrible struggles have broken out with immense human cost. Three million displaced, 700,000 forced to seek shelter in neighbouring countries. Thousands killed and injured. Let's now hear an individual story. It's not the very worst, but as you'll hear, it is full of drama and terror. We'll meet Ahmed, who's Sudanese, but also an Australian citizen, having studied finance at university here. He returned to Khartoum two years ago, and he's had to flee suddenly. I spoke to him on a Skype line from Cairo, where he's now holed up with his family, and thanked him for agreeing to share his story. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us, please, what life in Khartoum was like before this conflict? And maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on so listeners get an understanding of where you sit. Khartoum is a very simple city. It's the capital of the country, the Republic of Sudan. It's underdeveloped. A lot of people probably came from all around Sudan in the last or so. So it can feel a bit of a village, but it's just a very large village with about 10 million people. Oh, right. And I moved there probably 2020, around the time of COVID. And my intent was to go back and help as much as I can. Because at that point, there was a, a revolution. There was a lot of optics in the air. There was a lot of initiative to solve very old and structural problems. And I think of myself as a good problem solver. So I went there and I picked up a few problems that unfortunately turned out to be very old and complex problems. And most of them revolved around digital payments or agriculture. So what are your skills, please? What are you trained as, Ahmed? I'm trained as an accountant and an architect. I had uh, I have a bachelor's degree from Flinders University in uh, commerce accounting and another one from University for architecture. Uh, once I left Australia, industry pretty much figured out I'm in project management with a little bit of program management. Uh, so I always considered myself as a problem solver, somebody who could implement solutions. And I've kind of dedicated my skill set to solving problems in Sudan uh, because they don't have that competence. And how long had you lived in Australia? About 12 years. 12 years, right. So you went back to try to contribute to this time of great blossoming of hope. We reported on it and you got a lot of clients and so on. You planned to stay there, I take it, and, and really resettle yourself. Is that right? That is correct. That was up to the point of the war. I couldn't see myself doing anything else, to be honest. I saw myself staying in Sudan, solving problems and contributing to society and the communities that I was helping. And probably for the last two years, I was mostly focused on helping farmers, farmer communities, farming co-ops, that sort of thing. And since the war broke out, it's very hard for me to think of another option or another plan or to divest, divert or anything within those lines because I, I feel a lot of responsibility to my 
customers and communities that I was involved in in the last two years. What were the first reports you heard of the conflict breaking out? Were, were you immediately worried or did you think it might blow over? We didn't get reports. We just woke up and found ourselves in the middle of a war. It was very sudden. It wasn't something gradual. It wasn't a gradual rise of tensions. It was literally waking up. What's that noise? It's gunshots. Let's turn on the news. <laughs> Let's see what this is about. You live very close to a military base, don't you? Yeah, we do. Unfortunately, Khartoum has like 60-something military bases, and one of them was about two kilometers away from us. And at the same time, we had uh, our neighbors. He's actually brother of the militia leader, uh, the RSF, which is one of the belligerent mm-hmm. parties mm-hmm. or the belligerent military parties. War. And, and he was using his house as a warehouse for ammunition. Yeah. So we were quite close to places of interest that the military might strike. As I understand it, you basically stayed home for about eight nights after the fighting started. You kept thinking it'll die off and you had no water, lights were out, you were just hiding. So, you know, pretty um, dramatic change in your circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, the first few days were absolutely horrific. We thought our house was shelter enough because our concerns were mostly uh, stray bullets and we kind of didn't take the risk of being hit with an airstrike that seriously. We didn't think that the risk of somebody breaking into our house is serious, but those turned out to be very, very real, very real threats. So for the first eight days, we had no electricity, no water. Everybody's pretty much sleeping on the floor, away from windows, not even moving. We didn't even have internet or communication for most of that time. So it's just people laying on the floor, waiting for calmness, hoping that calmness will translate to something peaceful. What made you decide finally that you had to leave? It wasn't a decision that my family and I had made. It was mostly coordination from my sisters who were, who are keeping up with the news. And to be honest, they were kind of hysterical, but they made the right call. <laughs> so right. it was pretty much calling us, telling us there's a bus that's leaving in an hour and it's about five, six, seven kilometers away. Get on that bus, do whatever you can do to get on that bus. To take you where? To take us to the border with Egypt. So they were on the case, lucky for you. And what was that journey like out of Khartoum and to the Egyptian border? Can you must, there must've been a range of emotions flowing through you. Honestly, I think it was just different levels of the same emotion, which was terror. It wasn't multiple emotions. There wasn't. We didn't have time to to mourn or to feel sad about anything. It was literally we have to get get to the bus. That means passing through multiple checkpoints. We don't know how they're going to deal with us. Once we got to the bus, the bus started moving and transporting us through the destruction in Khartoum. We were just thinking, okay, when can we get out of this, or how long is it going to take? And then the journey itself. It was. T- Terrifying, but also unbelievable risk. We didn't know how hard that journey would be. So the, the trip itself from Khartoum to the border, I think it was 17 hours. It was mostly okay. It was just a very long trip. But once we got to the border, that's kind of the nightmares. Well, it took um, five days to get visas, I understand, and hundreds of thousands of people stuck at the border. 
Yeah. And even then, that was kind of an advanced stage. It took us two days to to even find a place to stay. For the first, let's say, 24 hours, we were just sleeping on the ground in the middle of the desert. And everybody was thought it was a joke to remind us, hey, beware of scorpions. Oh. And then and, uh, once we found a place, we thought, okay, now we could calm down a bit and let's sort out this visa thing. And uh, at that point, my sisters thought it's a good idea for everybody to attach their applications to my application because I'm Australian citizen. And the rest of my family do not have any other citizenship. And uh, that process took five days. It actually took four days for the embassy to tell us or to give me feedback. We cannot process your application because you're an Australian citizen and you need to go to somewhere else. I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to try to reapply with my Sydney's passport, which I just got in November 2022. And once I did that, I got the visa. Everybody got their visa. So you, so it's hours. actually your Sudanese passport. You say you've got dual passports. Your Sudanese passport worked um, rather Correct. than the Australian one, right? And and Ahmed, what about it, now? You're in your, you're in Cairo now. You're safe, but with little certainty about the future. Is there anything you can do but wait? Uh, nothing. There's nothing I could do other than wait. We don't have any any options really. But you've got some uh, accommodation there, have you? We've got accommodation. My sisters, who originally planned to meet us in Halfa and what Halfa in that land border, ended up coming to Aswan, which is the nearest major city from the Egyptian border. And then they flew us to Cairo, and they've already set up very comfortable situation for us in Cairo. Nice residence, uh, connected to any major service we want. We're quite comfortable in Cairo. It's just. We have nothing to do out of other than wait, and we're kind of running out of patience. For we know the situation can't accommodate frustrated, disappointed, but there's nothing else to do. I mean, you're you're, you're in. I mean, that's a critique of the cities, critique the, of the situation. Do you plan to return eventually to Sudan? It's safe enough. Yeah, well, everybody everybody's looking forward to that. At the moment, Sudan is an entirely lawless country, but once we think there's enough measures to protect people, it would probably be one of the first flights in the first flights to go back. But why? Just help. I mean, that shows a lot of commitment. Well, yeah. I mean, we have a lot over there. We have assets. We have uh, responsibilities. We have rights. I mean, we have a whole life over there. We have communities. There are so many economic and social ties that abandoning them one we feel would be responsible because a lot of people do depend on us and two that idea of starting all over again it's probably very difficult for most of us tell me what do you hear from people who did stay behind in Khartoum uh, is there any semblance of normal life any or any suggestion it might return soon i'm i'm in touch with people in Khartoum almost on a daily basis and um, different problems. I mean, I, I have a friend who still who just made it out of Khartoum in the last few days, and his biggest concern was kidnappings. His biggest concern, because there's this new phenomenon over there that the militia or, let's say, random people are kidnapping and holding people hostage for ransom. And that was his ultimate number one concern. And another friend, his concern is how expensive everything became because productivity completely died down 
across the country. So it's dependent on importing stuff, which is unbelievably difficult, unbelievably expensive. And you end up paying $5 for a 250 milliliter bottle of water. And at the end of the day, Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. So the conditions over there, there are people who are stressed out about the economic impact, and there's people who are stressed out about the security impact. And all of them are just there waiting for ceasefire, waiting for peace, waiting for something. Mm. A lot of people are stuck there. Well, good luck. Um, Let's hope that those talks do finally yield some fruit. Um, Doesn't seem too, uh, as if, you know, there's not a lot of very good signs, but you never know. You never know. Keep hope alive. Thanks for telling us your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it as well. That was Ahmed. We're not using his last name to protect uh, the family who's left in Sudan. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.